Getting recommendations from your friends for that perfect diet might be a big waste of time. The real answer is already within you. Your genes. What are the best foods based on your DNA? What foods have the nutrients that you need? How quickly do you metabolize caffeine and alcohol? Don't guess. Use the code RJYOUNG, that is R-J-Y-O-U-N-G, for $20 off a Genopalette DNA kit to find out how to eat for your genes. What's up, kinfolk? It's RJ Young. I am not on a step mill. Thank you for downloading, subscribing, watching the number one ranked show, wherever it is you get your podcast, on the YouTubes, on the Twitters. We are at number one show and we are cooking with gas. I'm talking about propane and propane accessories because in this episode, as you can see from the headline, we got the man's Joel Klatt. And I got to tell you, I had so much fun with this, right? And the way that the Bob Stoops interview was fun for me as a fan of Bob Stoops and his teams, this is that sort of fun for me. But I'm also talking to a colleague and the same way that I'm talking to Bob Stoops as a colleague, which is wild. But we're going in depth and getting into some real interesting topics that I know you care about if you're a college football fan, college football aficionado, and you know that I am. And one of the topics we discuss is actually one I want to discuss with you here. It's about Georgia. Okay. So many of you know that on the first day that we are out of the dead period, we can have official visits. We can have guys making plans to go to campuses and check them out and go through camps and all the rest. We have Georgia announcing the commitment to transfer of not one, but two five-star prospects. Darian Kendrick, who transfers from Clemson to Georgia, and Eric Gilbert, who transfers from LSU to Georgia. You'll know Eric Gilbert is not just a tight end. He is the highest rated tight end in the rankings era. He's also the only tight end to win national Gatorade player of the year. Man had 1,800 yards receiving in one season as a tight end. He is every bit of six foot five, 253 pounds. Darian Kendrick goes to Clemson as a wide receiver. They flip him the corner and he becomes a first team all conference performer out there. And now you have that guy to replace Eric Stokes. But you also get into a Georgia program and a Georgia team that is loaded for elephant. Forget bear. All right. 2020, Georgia had 16 five stars on the roster. Okay. Five star quarterback JT Daniels ends up being the starter by the end of the season. Five star running back Zamir White comes back. Five star tight end Darryl, Darnell Washington was lining up on the numbers against Cincinnati. And you know what kind of man that is at six foot seven, 260, when you can line him up on the numbers because he's that athletic. Now you can put Darnell Washington and Eric Gilbert on either side of the field and dare your five foot 10, five foot nine cornerback to try to shut them down. You can't line a linebacker up out of there because he ain't got those sort of cover skills. What I'm telling you is if Georgia does not win the SEC championship and play for a national title, let alone win a national title, right? It's a complete bust. For Georgia this year. And you can have a really good discussion about whether or not Kirby Smart is the guy to try to get this done. Because again, I'm telling you, 2020, 16 five stars. You also have 51 four stars, which means that 67 of the 85 scholarship players on your roster last year are blue chips. And all you had to show for it was a peach bowl where you didn't even play for the SEC title this year. You have an Alabama team that is as down as it's ever going to be 
with Nick Saban as head coach. They have a new quarterback. They have a new offensive coordinator. They have to reload at wide receiver. They have to reload at running back, and they have to do something else on the offensive line. Now, the defense is going to be a little bit nastier than last year. Could be filthy, depending on how good Pete Golden ends up being with them. But you're still going to have your best chance to have an SEC East team win the title that you've had basically five years. And the last time that Georgia was anything like this good, they played for a national title, and they had Alabama on the road before Tua Tonga below, and Devontae Smith said, nah, take this L. Added to this, what they have on the roster to begin with. So you can go Keely Ringo, who was one of my favorite five stars in 2020, who looks like an outside linebacker playing corner on one side. You have Nylon Green on the other side. You can have Nolan Smith as your edge guy, Jalen Carter as your dominant nose. And then offensively, to add to JT Daniels, Amir White, Darnell Washington, and Eric Gilbert, you can also add in there Kenny McIntosh, Kendall Milton. You're going to be great on the offensive line. You added Amarius Mims. I don't know if he's good enough to play right away, but you had that sort of depth. You have Smile Munden. You have, oh my God, you have dudes on that defense. And then you add Darian Kendrick to this? What are we talking about with Georgia if we're not talking about a national championship? But are they going to be the number one team in the country coming out? Probably not. And a lot of this has to do not with just how we are evaluating them presently, but how we have to evaluate Georgia over the last quite literally 30, 40 years. Because it has been 40 years since Georgia has won a national title. They hired Kirby Smart to do just that. Because what they're getting right now, they got out of Mark Rick. Got off of Mark Rick. You brought Kirby in because he comes from Alabama. He's one of the most vaunted, if not the most vaunted assistant that Nick Saban has ever had. And he has been the only, the only SEC program to beat Alabama in a recruiting rankings battle, okay? They've had number one ranked classes. Going into this 2021 season, I would not be shocked to find out they are the two-time defending 24-7 composite team talent champions. Now, I'm the guy giving out championships for national rankings and for composite talent, but it's also to drive home the point that your talent has to overcome your coaching if you're Kirby Smart. And I don't need you to be brave in letting Todd Munkin call the kind of offense that is modern, puts the ball through the air, and takes advantage of a vertical attack. I'm asking you to be smart. We give coaches way too much credit in this very conservative sport for being what we call brave when really it's just a smart thing to do. An example of this is Kelly Bryant takes Clemson to the college football playoff. And Dabo Sweeney responds the next year by saying the true freshman quarterback is going to be our guy. People poo-pooed it. People yelled about it. Kid's not ready. I don't care if he's a five-star. I don't care if he's the number one player in the country. And all ended up happening was Trevor Lawrence is a true freshman, takes Clemson to a national championship. Kelly Bryant, who opts out, red shirts, goes in the portal before the season ends, ends up at Missouri, not playing for titles not getting drafted highly. You have to do the smart thing for your football program. And the smart thing for your football program right now is to let Todd Munkin do the job you hired him to do. Let him get the ball in James Cook's hands out in space. Let Zamir White be a battering ram, of course. But you better push that ball to Kyrgios Jackson. You better push that ball to Demetrius Robertson. You better push that ball to Dominique Blaylock. And did I forget to add? Yes, I did. They still have George Pickens on the roster. Which is to say that maybe he's not ready to go in September, on September 4th against Clemson. But by November, he might be. Which means you will have your best weapon back on a team full of weapons. 
Georgia, it's up to you now, baby. It ought to be you and Oklahoma in the national championship this year. And if neither one of y'all makes it, it's your own doggone fault. But hey, Georgia started as the number one team in the 2020 competitive talent last year. And what do they have to show for it? But a nail-biting win against a Cincinnati team that the college football playoff selection committee thought wasn't good enough to play for a playoff, even after running the regular season undefeated. All right. Now, I want to talk with Joel Klatt in what is a lively discussion about everything from 11 a.m. kickoffs to the transport portal to playoff expansion. Let's talk to Joel. Joel, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited for the season. Like, one of the worst things about college football is the offseason, but there's an <laughs> opportunity to talk about some things that really bring into focus just how exciting the season can be. And I yeah. want to start real quickly with how are you, how excited are you to be at a game where 100,000 people are also going to be there? I mean, you know, shoot, I, I'll tell you what I'm most excited for is, is the, the pent up emotion that, that is going to be so prevalent at these places, because remember, there's nothing like college football, right? So we can go back to other sports and go back into other arenas, but remember college football is special because it's like home. And, and it's because it reminds us of the togetherness of our university, right? That's why everyone loves the pageantry and the sights and the sounds and the smells of college football. And, and right off the bat, we're going to get three games that are going to be the first time fans are back seeing their teams play at Minnesota on that Thursday night at Wisconsin uh, opening weekend of the season on Saturday. And then we're going to be at the shoe when Oregon goes to Ohio State for the first time. People are going to be back in the horseshoe. I cannot wait, RJ, for the pent-up emotion that is going to be let out uh, uh, during those games. And I, I got to tell you, I last year was was painful. We did it. We wanted to do the best what we could all, all around. The players were unbelievably disciplined, and they should be commended as such. Um, but it'll be good to have fans back. Let me just give you a quick story. We did a game, and I won't talk about which one because it's kind of gross, but we did a game where there was just a couple thousand fans in the stands and, and a player got hurt badly, um, broke his leg bad. And we went to break and there wasn't enough people in the stands to drown out his screams that we could hear from the press box. That never happened to me before, you know, and, and so to say that I'm excited to have some fans in the stands is, is an understatement. Yo, man, uh, knowing where you call games from, at least at uh, Memorial Stadium, I can only imagine what it was like to hear that because it's such a distance. Like even mm. the press box where I'm used to watching a game at Oklahoma, it, it's so far away that I can't fathom what that must have felt like and really how you're going to feel when you get to do this once again in September. Yeah, but yeah. to get it September, it's one of my favorite months of the year because the non-conference slate is so delicious and luscious. Yeah. What's your favorite game on that? Well, for, for, for of our games, mm -hmm. you know, I think that there's there's some sneaky games, but my favorite game is obviously Oregon at Ohio State. I think that has the most meaning as it relates to college football. Um, like I said, it's going to be the first time fans are back in the shoe. Uh, it's it's the fan base and and program that fought the hardest to even be playing football last year. So I think that you're going to see a lot of passion. And then 
The other game, you know, all, all due respect to Nebraska and Oklahoma on, on the anniversary of the game of the century, that game just doesn't, you know, it just, <laughs> it's, it's not the same. It it's that game. Yeah, it, it, ain't that the truth. Notre Dame-Wisconsin in Chicago is just like, that's a great game, right? And, and in particular with all the uh, Notre Dame fan base in Chicago. So that, that one's going to be fun. I, I can't wait for that one. I think that one's going to be a special game. So Notre Dame-Wisconsin, sneaky good, right? And I think not just for the reasons that you mentioned, but Jack Cohen transfers from Wisconsin to Notre Dame. Yeah. They still haven't figured out who's going to replace Ian Book just yet. So there's a part of me that wants to see Jack Cohen behind center yeah. going at Wisconsin in a year in which I expect them to really come out of the Big Ten West. What do you think? Yeah, uh, well, yes. I mean, th they are – all due respect to Northwestern, they've won two of the last three division titles in, in the Big Ten West. But I, I still think that Wisconsin is, is kind of like the, the program that you have to target. They're, they're more consistently at the top. Uh, you know, I think of Iowa, Northwestern, and Wisconsin as those programs that you got to attack um, if, if you're going to succeed in that division. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to see that. It's, you know what's interesting, though, RJ, with the new rules and all the transfers – I think this is going to be commonplace that we have, you know, quarterbacks facing their former teams and all the emotion. And, and it's because, you know, with the one-time transfer rule, we're, we're getting into that mode where it is like free agency. So this is going to be the first of, I feel like many times that we get this uh, opportunity to, to see something like this. And for that reason, obviously, yes, the storylines would be so deep and, and so great if Cone was on the field against his former team. hundred percent. And you mentioned the portal, I believe we're up to nearly 4,700 kids yep. that have entered. And not nearly that many scholarships for them to go get. The portal's a disaster, right? Everyone's like, oh, this is great. This is, this is all well and good. Do you know how many kids are going to throw away free education to go into the portal and never get that free education back? Unintended consequence, you know? And, and that's why you better be – if you're a player out there and you watch this, you consume college football information, I would just, I would just say enter at your own risk. You know what I'm saying is that RJ, you and I both see the benefits of the transfer portal. And there's a lot of reasons why I think it's, it's good, but there are some things that are unintended consequences that are not so quality. And, and one of them is the fact that guys are going to be led into that portal, make emotional decisions and go into that portal and have nowhere to go. And they've got a free education sitting right in front of them. And they're never going to get that free education back. And that's, that's a sad aspect of this transfer portal. Joel, I hear you on the pros and the cons of the portal. I tend to agree that, yeah, you're going to have some kids that are left without a scholarship. I also believe it is their prerogative, just like it was their prerogative last year, to do what they need to do. When they turn 18, they're adults. And, yeah, there are going to be some consequences. But I also think this is natural. We needed to have this occur so that everybody can see how it works and what the good parts of it and the bad parts are of it and how you can evaluate that as one of the kiddos, right? Because yeah. I'm with you. I want them to graduate. I also want them to be happy. So yeah, no, listen, I'm, I'm with you, but we, we um, I think it, it has to do with parameters. You know, like I said, there, there are a lot of things that I love about it and I'm not coming down hard on it. I'm just saying that this is one of the un unintended consequences that we need to be cognizant of. Um, for instance, I, I don't believe that the portal should be open during the season. Um, that leads to emotional and rash decisions on both sides, coaches and players. Um, you know, you don't play in a game and on Sunday, you know, you're mad at the world and you just want to leave and you leave. Well, 
in, in the big leagues, um, in the NFL, in Major League Baseball, in the NBA, he, that's not afforded you, right? You're kind of under contract that season, even if you're in the middle of a longer contract. You know, you have to wait until the end of the year to, to be Aaron Rodgers and say, hey, I'm unhappy, I want out. So I just think that we should have open periods where you go into the portal so that cooler heads can prevail. I think that um, a lower number of kids will go to the portal and the ones that are going there will have made a better decision and possibly even have um, you know, a location to go. Uh, because I, I don't think it's, it's, it's very similar to all these guys that leave school early to go to the NFL and don't get drafted. You know, I think that they get bad advice and they make poor decisions at, at, to a certain extent. So again, all, all I think is that if you're going to have a transfer portal, it needs to be closed during the season because during the season decisions are, are generally very emotional decisions. To your point about the NFL and the NBA, I think we're all experiencing, even in college football, tampering, right? So if you close it, you're still going to have people that are doing what they're not supposed to do according to the rules. I just don't think that it's human behavior for folks to not think about being mad and wanting to do something about it. And at least if we are open about when we are like full-time before July 1, you transfer where you want to transfer, you enter the portal whenever you want to enter the portal, we at least know what's going on. We're able to track it. Right, we're able to get data from it as opposed to people being clandestine in their movements. I want to see people be a little bit more open about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I think that is good for the sport, especially since we're still in this real quasi place where is it a professional sport? No. Is it getting toward being a professional sport with name, image, and likeness, with free agency and the transfer portal? Yeah. And I think for us to not treat it that way is a mistake. Um, but no, like we're going to get to see it. And I hope, I hope that we have some good stories to tell that come out of it as much as we get to tell some, you know, some cautionary tales as it were. And having this conversation with coaches has been really enlightening to me because I'm hearing it from all sides. Right. And most of the coaches are going, Hey, if you're not happy, I want to help you be happy. Let's figure it out. Mac Brown did this in North Carolina. Clay Helton is doing this at USC. And I think that's going to be good for the sport. I think it's going to be healthy for the sport. Yeah, uh, like I said, there, there's there's a lot of good to it. I think as as we move forward, there's going to be little tweaks that that are going to be made that that need to be made. Like um, Dan Wilkerson with the redshirt rule, right? How did that go down? He thought right. that he was going to have his kids, and they ended up transferring on him. I that's just, that's exactly right. So, moving from that into what I what the game I'm most excited about, OU Nebraska. I wanted Nebraska to be nationally ranked for this game uh, unless unless I've completely misread how the top 25 is going to go down they're not going to be ranked however it's still a very big deal for us we're the history of the sport for we're in like 152nd year of college football and that that game traditionally had been so great and we haven't seen it in 10 years but it's also kicking off at 11 a.m which as you very well know has upset a number of Oklahoma fans and I wonder what you had to say about that? Well, you know, I get it. You know, there's there's no doubt about it. But um, it, it's also, you know, the Oklahoma is directly responsible for this. Uh, you, you might be asking, like, why? Well, they're the ones that made the strongest and best push back in the 80s uh, in order to have the ability to sell their television rights. The you know, so the, yeah. that's, that's exactly right. And so... 
modern day college football and, and the way that we consume it on television is, is largely due to the fight, um, and, and rightly so, of Oklahoma and what they did back then. So, um, listen, I, I, I get it, and I understand that fans maybe don't want to kick at, at 11 Central. I, I would say that it, Fox, as an entity, is going to pay millions and millions of dollars for these contracts, just like ESPN does. And in order to pay those millions and millions of dollars, you've got to have a plan in order to recoup that so that you can continue to pay those millions and millions of dollars. Um, and Fox's strategy uh, has been in the last few years to showcase that kick time, not hide that kick time, but showcase that that is where all of our resources go, right? That's where our studio show uh, is going to go from site. That's where the bulk of our viewership comes from. Um, and that's where, you know, we're trying to showcase our best games at that time. So it's certainly not a knock for it to be kicked at that time, even though I know that they don't like it. But this, this notion that teams should be allowed to choose their own kick times, I think, is um, quite annoying, to be honest with you, because that, that's what they sold. You know, that's, they have a service. They have uh, these games, and that was sold and to the highest bidder. And we're going to purchase those and try to showcase them the best way that we possibly can. Like I said, I, I get it. I, I totally understand. And, and to a large extent, I feel for the fan base that um, at Oklahoma because they feel like they've been put behind the eight ball. I would also suggest, though, that, you know, that time slot also has had some benefit over the last couple of years, because what we've seen is if you can showcase yourself on our biggest stage, what you will get is amazing run and exposure the rest of the day in every single game and halftime show and pregame show, regardless of network throughout the day in college football. You know, so when you're showcasing yourself, whether it's for individual awards or in this day and age of very subjective rankings at the end, and you need some of those, those points, if you will, you know, you're going to get that exposure by playing at that time. But listen, I get it. And, 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 and I feel for you. And at the same time, you know, it's, it's we're, we're trying to showcase that game. That is our best game of the day. Red River is played um, at that time. Ohio State, Michigan is kicked at that time every single year. And, and to some extent, you just have to say, well, that's that's the bed that is made via these television contracts. To round out your point, um, and I'm looking down because I wanted to make sure I get this right, because Joel makes a point about OU in Georgia being the reason that we have the sort of television windows that we do where the networks are telling you when they want your game to kick off. 1984, Georgia and OU led a lawsuit against the NCAA to end its regulation of televised football, right? It changed yep. the way that we view football games literally. And it also made yes. room for these millions of dollars that are generated by the sport, by college football being a $5 billion industry. And it's called Big Noon for a reason right? It's, it's the big noon game. It's the game that Joel is on, right? It's the one mm -hmm. that we really look forward to for all the reasons that you put out there. It's also the one in which we know that people are going to show up for on television, right? We know that people want to do that as a dude that comes up an Oklahoma fan living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, loving the Sooners. I hear it and I hear it over and over again. 
It's really people that go into the games feel as if they have to get up at the crack of dawn to get yeah. to the game on time, to fill that stadium, to make a good television product. And you're not going to be able to make those folks happy, especially when you have millions of people watching around the country as opposed to yeah. 84,000 inside the stadium. And I, I think it's an interesting discussion, but I also I hear, I hear everybody's side. I also see that the contract says they get to tell you when they want your game to kick off on these particular games, and that's the way the rules are written. I want to ask you about this. The Pac-12 has not had a representative in the college football playoff until since 2016. It was Washington, right? right? Most people, right. you and I know Jake Browning was the head quarterback of that team, right? But yeah. like not a whole lot of other people know because they got skull dragged by Alabama. And I remember yeah. it because Lane Kiffin got fired for essentially calling plays they didn't practice. And they still won yeah. the, the national championship game. They still, right. they still won the game. Then they had to go and, and Sark was the coordinator for the national championship. Right? It was a mess. Man. It was a mess. You know, but... To that point, I'm going to give you twofold, right? And we're going to wrap this all into one big question. Will the Pac-12 get a team into the playoff this year? And, <sighs> and if they do, who gets left out? Gosh. Um, well, you just have to play the odds in that, right? So these are not going to be uh, – and I understand everyone's going to try to hold me to definitive statements. but They do it to me too. Um, <laughs> yeah, and these are not definitive statements. If I had to bet my own money, mm. I would say no, a Pac-12 team would not get in. If it was just, you know, you know, black or red, right? Like you just have to say yes or no and lay a bet. I would have I would say no. Um if they do, which they could very well do. Listen, they've got a good strong non-conference slate. If Oregon goes into the shoe and beats Ohio State, watch out. Then here we go. This is what everyone in the Pac-12 footprint doesn't doesn't understand. They they feel like, well, you know, no one talks about us and East Coast bias. Win a big game and we'll talk about it. Like that's, that's as simple Don't as, get it, as beat it, down by Auburn. Like, that's exactly right. You no, know, and they had that game. They could have won that don't game, get RJ. Beat down right? by Iowa State. Like, that's exactly right. That's that's exactly right. And 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 I uh, listen and I talk with these coaches and I understand the inherent issues in scheduling that they have to deal with that maybe other conferences don't. Now, I, I totally understand that. I'm not here to just say like be the old man shouting at the clouds and just say, stop complaining. Cause there are, there are things that they can do structurally to help them in this conversation. There's no doubt. Now, Having said that, in this season, those structural changes will not happen, right? So what can they do to potentially go to the playoff? Win the big non-conference games. That, that is as plain and simple as, as I can possibly put it because it's, it's very similar. Remember what Tiger Woods always used to say? It's like winning takes care of everything. That's this exact same conversation you can have in college football. RJ, if Oregon were to win a big non-conference game, if USC were to win a big non-conference game, if Stanford would have been were to win a big non-conference game, then you're going to get a huge wave of exposure um, as well as as uh, you know all of us talking about that conference and what's going on during the course of their league schedule. So can it happen? Absolutely. There's there's no doubt. Um, would I bet that it does happen? No. If they were to get in, I think that the the conference that were the conference that would get left out, I believe the way that the schedule is structured would be the Big Ten because I think that the the Pac-12 would get that foothold based on. Oregon beating Ohio State if they do, 
Okay, so it's it's a for me it's a process of elimination, not based on the strength of each conference sitting right now or anything, but based on the way that the schedule plays out, the way that the Pac-12 gets their footing would be an Oregon win over Ohio State, and then I think that that would put the Big Ten behind the eight ball. I agree with you. I also I would love to say that Washington versus Michigan, especially in the Big House, would have something to do with this, but Michigan would have to hold up their end in a way that they just haven't in the Harbaugh era. But it does in the sense that of what I'm talking about, right? It, it's good for narrative sure. for the 100%, Pac-12. 100%. And, and to, to the point about being left out, I look at 2018, right? Ohio State's a good football team. They get ran over by an actual train called Purdue, and they don't get into the playoff, right? Oklahoma mm-hmm. gets that spot. Having won its conference championship and having looked like the better team, according to this room full of suits, called a playoff committee that's going to tell us who they think is good. And I, you know, we don't need to do that. We, we agree on the, on the playoff expanding and that's enough for me. Um, It's true. But to this point about Oregon and Ohio state, I want to touch on a little bit more and get into the weeds because I think it's really fascinating. Anthony Brown, I think is in a sixth year and probably starts at quarterback for Oregon. We'll see. I know Ty Thompson is the dude over there, but they're, Really good on defense. We both love mm-hmm. Kayvon Thibodeau, Noah Sewell. Man, Justin Flo, I can't wait to see him play. But on the other side, yep. you have this Lamborghini. No, let me go back to this another way. You have a Red Bull F1 racing car. You have a Mercedes, right? <laughs> you have the best car in the game, right, in, in Ohio State. You just got to make sure you put Lewis Hamilton behind the wheel and you don't know what sure. you got in CJ Stroud, Kyle McCord, and Jack Miller because none of those guys sure. throw a college football pass, even though they're really talented. Where's the, where's the X's and O's battle for you here? Well, it's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think that Oregon's best chance is, is if Kayvon Thibodeau is a game wrecker, mm. right? Like that's, that's the way that you take – Ohio State offensively, RJ is too deep at every single position. Like, this offense is loaded, really good on the offensive line. I believe that they're really good in the backfield as well, even without Trey Sermon. They've got a young guy that I'm very excited about. Their wide receiver group, I think, is the best in in the country right now, and in particular after all these Alabama guys have cycled through. So currently, you've got as good of a wide receiver core as any in the country. They've got great tight ends. So it's just about the quarterback. Well, I think that the easiest way to disrupt Ohio State offensively is to make a young quarterback look over his shoulder, and you do that with Thibodeau, right? Like, he's, he is phenomenal. I think he's probably going to be the first pick in the draft next spring. He's that good. Um, and so if he, if he plays really well, Oregon's going to have a great, a great chance. Um, that's where the X's and O's kind of begin and end for me in particular in, in June before I really dive into it. Right. Uh, but I, but I will tell you, Ohio state, they are really good. Everybody's focusing on the quarterback. They're loaded on both offensive and defensive line. And as you and I know, when you get really down to it, yes, quarterback play is exorbitantly important. Mm-hmm the line of scrimmage is where it's really done. And so uh, I think Ohio state's going to have a heck of a team because of that. A uh, couple freshmen uh, that I'm very excited about. You mentioned one Travion Henderson, a five-star mm-hmm. tailback who I think is going to be the second coming to Christian McCaffrey. He's that talented. He's that He's good. good. I saw him in spring, RJ. I went out and watched their practice and I hate to say it this way, but like, you just know, right? <laughs> like, I mean, right. Like he, he takes a couple reps 
And I was like, oh, I was like, okay, like, he's really good. You know, I, I saw, I, I can remember going way back uh, the spring of Chase Young's freshman year. He was about to be a true freshman. And I went out there and I was like, hey, who's number two? And Urban, Urban was like, oh, yeah, he's, that's Chase Young. He's a true freshman. I'm like, I'm sorry. He's supposed to be going to prom Saturday and he looks like that. I was like, okay, like he's really good. Uh, Henderson maybe doesn't have that physical stature that you know, jumped you know out to me like a Chase Young, but as soon as he, I could see him move and and his hands, and I'm like, oh my my goodness, you know, a play caller like Ryan Day is is gonna, he's gonna be really good, guys. And then your your the eye on the other side uh, quickly is Jack Sawyer, uh, true freshman mm-hmm. defensive end. Larry Johnson just continues to put out hitters and it's so much fun to watch yeah. because you're like, Hey, just, just pick a guy from the Ohio state defensive line room. Yeah. Well, and remember that, you know, but the, it's not just Sawyer, you know, they've, they've got like three or four guys that they can roll through. So they're going to have a fresh pass rush. They're, they're too deep at both tackle positions. The linebacker core is what's concerning. That's why they were going after uh, the transfer. I'm, I'm blanking on his name and how to pronounce it. Uh, that ended up going. Toto, that's right, uh, who went to Alabama. But 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 they're still they're still really good players. Their secondary, I think, is going to be very strong. So it'll be interesting to see Ohio State. Oregon's going to have their hands completely full. And even in a noon kickoff, wink wink, Boomer Sooner fans, that place is going to be insane. First time those fans are back in the shoe for that game. I mean, that that's going to be a really tough place to win for Oregon. But what's the best way to take the fan base out of it? Get to the quarterback. And they've got the premier defensive edge player in the sport in Kayvon Thibodeau. Uh, I'm also would be remiss if I didn't say my alma mater. Tulsa is going to go up there and give Ohio State a good run for its money. I hope. Don't make me, I don't don't know. Make I me don't feel know. Hey, hey, hey. Just know, let, me, let me have that. Let, let me have that. You don't need to. <laughs> I don't need your expert analysis on that one. Uh, um, I've uh, I've already been very honest that I am <laughs> I am an elitist when it comes to conferences. You know this about me. Oh man! All right, so I want to touch on a couple of more things, and I promise I'll let you go. Um, no, no I, this is this is great. I love chatting with you. Okay. Whatever you want to chat about. Very cool. Um, Steve Sarkeesian in year one. Yeah, as what I think is low key a gauntlet of a non-conference schedule. And I'm yep. including Rice because Rice stomped a mud hole in Marshall when they were undefeated last year. Then you get a Louisiana team that really good. And yeah, Arkansas they beat Iowa State last year. Yeah. So, like, what's the what are you putting the over-under on for expectations? Not for wins, but for expectations. Yeah. Gosh, that's tough. I mean, I, I think that Texas is pretty talented. I am, I'm, I'm a firm believer that I think Sark is going to succeed there. Um, he tends to uh, do really well when he has a back. And I think Bajan Robinson is money. Sorry for saying this. I think he's the best back in the country. Um, if you really watch him in the second half of last year, he was unstoppable. I had the game against Kansas State, RJ, and that's I, I feel like I know he played well before that, but that's when it was kind of like, wow. How, however many times they wanted to give him the ball, he was going to run for eight to 12 yards a pop in that game, similar in the bowl game uh, against my alma mater, Colorado. So I think Texas could be really good. Um, this is not the year you want that low key, tough 
non-conference schedule because here's what a, a schedule like that does. It puts an immense amount of pressure on the coaching staff and the players because everyone thinks based off of brands that they should just walk through those games. So even if they struggle and win, people are going to be like, what's wrong with Texas? When, when you and I know that like, those are actually like decently tough games in particular for a guy in his first year, but they've got a great staff. They're recruiting very well. They're very talented. It's not like Tom left the cupboard bare. You know, they've recruited very well. They just didn't get a lot out of their, um, I would say their, um, their overall talent base. If you look at their overall talent base, it was, I believe, in the top four in the country last year. Georgia was the top talent base in the country, and, and they were in the top four. That's still there. So Steve's going to have the ability to succeed, and I think a lot of it early in the season is going to be finding the ways to have Bajan Robinson be the best player on the field. You can't hide him anymore, right? He's not a true freshman like he was early last year, any of that. Like, once he be, he's the best player on the field. So showcase him in that way. I, uh, Joel, you all know, is a very astute observer of college football. And I've been hearing from other assistants going, no, we just don't want any part of that kid. Like get it in yeah. Casey Thompson or Hudson Card's hands. And we're Absolutely. Gonna be happy. we just don't Absolutely. want him to get 25 touches. <laughs> if he gets 25 touches, they're going to, they're going to win 10 games. If he could stay healthy and touch the ball 25 times a game, he's that good. Mm-hmm. RJ, he is the best player on the field, right? Like he's a phenomenal player. If he touches it 25 times, it's going to be really tough for the opposing team to beat him. And if he stays healthy, that's a difficult conversation, right? Like, can you touch it 25 times and stay healthy at that age? I'm not sure. Um, and, and Steve's going to have to navigate those waters. That's the way I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but if he's touching it 25 times, watch out. I look, uh, you're going to force me to play outstanding defense in a league that does not have a moniker for playing outstanding defense. That's exactly uh, right. Right. Full stop. Like I, I got to be able to wrap up and tackle. And that kind of leads me into where I want to go next. Right. Because we could, I could talk about Jake Smith and Jordan Whittington and B. John Robinson until I get blue in the face, but <laughs> the six time reigning big 12 champion yep. is Oklahoma. Yep. And this is a and year rightly so. I've, I've been saying for two years, this is the year for Oklahoma to chase a national yep. championship, right? Yep. I'm going to give you this question, and then please take it wherever you want to go. Who should be the preseason number one team in the country? Um, if, if, if you really are taking each season as its own season, mm-hmm. and, and you're trying to throw out everything that happens before, mm-hmm. then Oklahoma should be the number one team in the country. Uh, based on what they bring back. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not how we're going to do this. Alabama has earned the right to be the number one team in the country because they're the best program in the country right now. And they have not shown that they're going to give up that spot all that lightly. Um, so I believe that Alabama, I'm going to probably put them number one. And then right behind that, you know, to be honest, all due respect to Clemson and their great run through this you know, last few years, of the top five, six teams in the country, you know, the two teams that kind of return a known commodity at quarterback are Georgia and Oklahoma. And those teams are loaded with talent. They're balanced. And so to me, that's kind of the two, three race right there. And, and I think that Spencer is more proven even than, um, 
our, our guy at, at, at Georgia, the yeah, Daniels, who transferred from USC, as good as Daniels is. And Spencer's, I just think, a better player. And he learned such a valuable lesson in Red River last year. You know, he thought he was going to go out there and gunsling it around and, and put up numbers regardless of what the system was. And Lincoln Riley said, hey, come take a seat next to me during the biggest game of their year. And that was humbling to him. I'm, I'm fully expecting, you know, as I'm calling that game, him to come out the next series or the next day. And he sat him for like a multiple series in that game. That was such a huge wake-up call. He played so much better mm -hmm. after that benching than he did prior. And it wasn't just experience. It was mentality. Okay. He allowed the system to be great and played great within it versus trying to be great regardless of what was called and what was going on in the system. Um, because of that lesson, the improvement on defense what they have coming back, OU has a better chance this season to win the national championship than they have since 2008. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. I, I was going to say 2017 because I always thought that they should have never lost to Georgia. And they were the matchup for Alabama in that year. But Yeah, but remember, they're trying to do that the, – Listen, yeah, that they had the matchup and, and everything. They were trying to do that with what would have been almost a historically bad defense to win the national championship. Very true. Very right? True. And not that – just remember now, it, it's only happened a couple of times since 1998, since the start of the BCS, that we've seen a team not have a top 25 defense win the national championship. It's only happened, I think, three times, I think. Um and one of them might have been in the last couple of years, I believe it was LSU uh, a couple of years ago, that didn't statistically have a top 25 defense, although they were, they were close. OU in 17 wasn't close. So they were, they were trying to do something that was legitimately uh, unprecedented, whereas now I believe they have a defense like that and potentially an offense that could rival, although not quite to the explosiveness of that 17 offense. No, you make a very good point because I think the other team that we talk about outside of the top 25 had Cam Newton at quarterback who I that's, that's exactly right. It was Cam's team. Best player of all time to play college football. And we had another discussion. I understand I just lobbed a bomb in that direction. You can pick it up if you want. No, but, but RJ, I had to play. Well, listen, I was on the field twice against Vince, three times against Vince Young. Once his junior or his second to last year in 04. And then we, we had to play him twice in 05. Who's the lucky SOB that had to play Texas <laughs> twice that year? This guy. <laughs> well, hey, look, uh, not too shabby NFL rookie of the year and one of the great Texas high school football players of all time and that dude. So, yes, he's right there. Um, I want to pick this up from that conversation about Georgia and Oklahoma because the monologue to start this, I talked about Georgia this being the year. Like, if you don't get it mm -hmm. done this year – there's a really good case for Kirby Smart just ain't going to get it done. I mean, yeah. I, like, you seriously, know, that was, especially after what they just picked up. That was my um, my entire uh, take on Tom Herman in Texas last year. I don't know if you remember that, but I, I was do. like, listen, you're the one with the returning quarterback and all the returning starters and the top four team in the composite rankings. OU is replacing their quarterback. You know, it's the first time that we've seen they had all those running backs down. They, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, if, you, if you're not going to beat OU and win the league this year, then maybe it's not going to happen. And I, and I feel very similar with, with Georgia. If Georgia doesn't topple Alabama this year and win the SEC and, and, and represent in, in that mode, you know, it's, 
it's kind of like, okay, like, well, are, are we on the right track? Are we, you know, I think that the only feather in Kirby's hat is that he's, he's basically done it before, right? He, he, he has gotten to that mountaintop and he had Alabama dead to rights, but he, he just God, couldn't, yes. he couldn't, couldn't get it done in that, in that overtime, even with what was it like second and 25. Um, but you're right. You know, like they've got, they've got the returning quarter. Alabama has lost so much. Now their defense is going to be good. Alabama's defense nasty. is going to, this is going to be an, a nasty, maybe a throwback Bama team. That's not scoring a million points after a year in which their offense was historically good with Mac Jones. Um, so, I mean, they're going to be, they're going to be, oof, they're going to be vicious on that side of the football and, and everyone better beware because what that's going to allow is all the maturation and experience to kind of take place on the offensive side, both at quarterback and, and around him at the skilled positions. So Alabama will be right there. There's no doubt. But going into the season, you can clearly state that like, hey, Georgia, Georgia's got more returning. They, they on paper really should be the better team. Um, now, whether that proves out on the field will, will remains to be seen. Dude, no, I'm I'm with you because it feels like Kirby Smart has had basically three opportunities to win a national championship, mm -hmm. and two of them went away when Justin Fields transfers to Ohio State, and I have to keep well, saying that. Well, that. that was all his fault. I mean. did, look, you chose Jake Fromm over Justin Fields, and I will never let you forget it. I will never let that happen, and that's in addition to – having Alabama dead to rights in a national championship game to win Georgia's yep. first title since like 1981 or whatever. And it's, I bring it up in that way because we used to say a word around this team in South Carolina and the word was Clemson, right? They don't get that anymore. They haven't got that in doggone near a decade now because what they do is stop a mud hole in people in the bowl games that matter. Now, we all saw yeah. Ohio State-Clemson, right? But they'll also tell you we beat Ohio State 31-0 in a game that mattered. I think that Georgia is approaching that, and it sucks to see because the SEC East is never going to be as light as it is right now with Tennessee in year one with Josh Heupel. Florida's in a rebuilding year. You don't know what to expect out of a Kentucky or uh, a Missouri, really. And I don't know that – Alabama is going to be the kind of challenge that we want them to be in the SEC West because who knows what LSU is going to be because they're really talented if, you know, now experienced. A&M doesn't have a quarterback. Like, I just – it feels like if there's a year to jump on the SEC, let alone Alabama, this is the year for everybody to do it. And I don't know that we're going to see that happen, man. I, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, that's interesting. I, I want to go back. I know this is not what you're touching no, on ahead, at the please. end, but, like um, – I'm just going to go back really quickly because I've had Georgia fans tell me like, well, what was he supposed to do? Jake Fromm just took him, you know, and had had a great year the previous year. And, and you know, you can't just throw Jake Fromm out like that because of what he had done. Lawrence, maybe? I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I was just going to say like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Didn't we see that from Clemson? Kelly Bryant took them to the playoff. And then immediately the next year, without even getting back to that point, Dabble was like, yo, my man Trevor is going to be our quarterback. What'd they do? They, they won the national championship in his, in his freshman season. So it's not unprecedented. And it just took, you know, some guts from a, a, a guy like Dabo Sweeney who knew it. And I think he knew it. And this is where Kirby's got to do some soul searching. Mm. He knew it 
when I believe it was Alabama was beating them up with Kelly Bryant at quarterback in, in the Sugar Bowl in the semifinal. He knew it then, okay? And, and you can make an argument that in the second half, when you're seeing a true freshman in Tua Tagovailoa come back and your offense can't sustain anything and can't win the game for you, even with a lead, shouldn't you know it then? That's just an, it's an argument you can make. If Trevor, listen, if Trevor Lawrence can start as a freshman, freshman, certainly Justin Fields can. Look what Fields did at Ohio State. My goodness. You know, like, guy is a baller. It's difficult to say this without it landing the way that's going to land, but I'm going to say it anyway. We applaud coaches for being brave in positions where I don't think they're being brave. They're just being smart, right? If you Hmm. are willing, like, and I'm throwing this at at Kirby Smart. Like, Trevor Lawrence is is better than Kelly Bryant. So it's like, uh, does that take guts or is it just like open your eyes? 100%, (laughs) right? And and you, like, Nick Saban did this. He even spoke about it. You can't play murder ball anymore. You have to be able to outscore other people. And then he said, fine, that's what you guys want to do. I'll recruit players to do that. And I'll hire assistants that can run those sorts of offenses. And they put up 50 a game last year. I look at Georgia and I say, let Todd Munkin do what he did at Cleveland. You know, let him do what he did at Oklahoma State. Like, you're going to be okay. Don't be brave. Be smart. Um, Goodness me. That is Joel Klatt, lead college football analyst for Fox Sports. I, man... This is fun. I love this. This is so much yeah. fun. I, I so appreciate you taking the time here. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to get out that we didn't get to? Um, not really. I think that um, I think what's exciting for college football, and this this goes to, and we could probably do a whole podcast, and maybe we should, on on the playoff expansion and the implications as uh, of that. Yeah. But. I think that this year, at least in the preseason, in the first few weeks, you're going to see a glimpse of what college football could be if we expanded the importance of the of the, of the playoff and, and the size of the playoff so that more teams could taste it and define success for themselves. And you might be asking, like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about that we're going to see Iowa State and North Carolina probably in the preseason top 10, and that's great for the sport, right? Granted, yes, the top five and six are going to be the exact same players, and are the final four playoff teams going to come from those six teams? Probably, right? You know, if I'm going to have to bet money on it, but, like, it's just a glimpse, okay? And if and if we can come to the table smartly, and, and think of the, the greater benefit to the sport rather than the benefit just of our own silos in terms of our programs and conferences. And we can expand that out and just expand our lens out. What we'll see is if we expand the importance of the sport to more teams, you'll have more stories like this. You'll start to see Wisconsin in there. You'll start to see Northwestern with a chance. You'll actually see a Pac-12 team, uh, Pac-12, uh, uh, Pac-12 team with a chance. And, and you'll see more stories like this because I think Iowa State's going to be really, really good. Um, I can't wait. We, we on paper, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I'll probably be in Norman that weekend. Uh, hey, and, my man. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Although the fan base will be all upset. I got to talk to Joe, look, RJ. Look, look, look. If, if, if winning takes care of everything, then, then you, you attribute that to Tiger Woods. They're undefeated by the time they play Iowa State, then, then nobody's going to care. And no other the point, they go. got to get past the vaunted juggernaut that is Kansas State. 
before they can actually have this conversation out loud. Yeah, I said it. I said it. That's that's twice in a oh, row. Dude. Twice in I a know. row. You know, know. but like for- last year was crazy because they were they were so much better than that Kansas State team and just folded. I'd never seen an Oklahoma team melt in this in the what was it like the last quarter and a half would you say yo man uh i would say we saw that once before but um god i want to say it was iowa state in 2017 because it felt oh, like yeah yeah, it was, yeah. like because john At haycock home. said no we're gonna drop everybody we're gonna tackle that's all we're gonna do we're gonna drop everybody we're gonna yeah. tackle and it frustrated the, the hell out of that- baker the, the only problem with that is like they could do it yes right 100%. and and um but hey, man, I, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait for this year. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be a great season. I really do. And I think that college football is headed in a direction where change will occur that makes the sport in general better. We are desperate for more change to the sport that makes the sport in general better, and not just specific conferences or specific programs. No, I'm I'm with that, man. I mean, you know that because I. Hell, I'm the person saying Central Florida won a national championship in 2017, right? Oh, that's crazy. That's craziness. Hey, uh, you run the table undefeated. You can't tell me I wouldn't won a national championship. Put me up against <laughs> Alabama. Let me get my brains kicked in and then tell me that I'm not any good. Like that's Oh, man. That's what I, be- that's what I want. That's what I believe. Uh, uh, did you not enjoy Coastal Carolina last year? Come on. I did. Yeah. Were you not now, entertained? Are they I, a that's four why touchdown? In, in my... In my playoff model, like we'd be giving the top group of five team uh, an automatic spin, uh, an automatic bid. Um, I think that I think probably twelve is the right number. I think twelve is the right number. Are you are you are you saying six automatic qualifiers? Yes. Okay. Okay. I I think if you got a conference and you play for a conference championship, you deserve to have an automatic qualifier, and there are ten of those. No. Okay. Okay. No. So you don't think I mean, I mean, not unless they're the best group of five team. Ooh. I mean, I'm giving. I'll give you a group of five team. I'll give you that. But you don't get. You're not getting the Sun Belt and a Mountain West and a Conference USA and a AAC. That's not yo, happening. Yo, 55% of FBS players play in those conferences. Yeah, and and they weren't good enough to play at higher level conferences. I mean, oh. <laughs> Oh, man, I don't I mean, want to I tell have, a kid that he's not good enough to play for a national championship. If he runs but, uh, but I'm telling them that he is. I'm telling okay. them that that he is, you know, um, again, I, I think that the group of five should be represented. There's there's no doubt in my mind. And I think that that would be great for the group of five. Um, I just don't want to give all all 10 of them automatic bids. I think that that would water everything down. Oh, man, I'm, I don't. But the way that I, I combat that is to say. Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Oklahoma, whomever you want to put in those uh, upper echelon, they're going to get a buy. They're going to get home games. You're going to get the same sort of, well, of tournament that you might get at, you know, that upper level that everybody watches where they're adding the 17th game. You see, know, if just, you don't win, if you don't win your conference in my model, you don't host a game. Ooh. Ooh. So we're not just, we're just, we're not just straight seeding them. And I do 12 so that I can give the top two seeds buys. Why do I give the top two seeds buys? Because the top two teams in the country are likely playing in a conference championship game against another team that will probably be in via the at-large spot. So you have to incentivize that game, okay? So let's just say, for example, Alabama and Georgia are playing the SEC championship game, okay? Okay. 
and both of them are going to go, and everyone knows that. Well, why play the game? Well, because the winner is going to get the top one of the top two seeds and get a bye. And so that's why I've, I've settled on 12. And then of uh, the, the remaining four teams, uh, they would host games. I don't see anything wrong with that, except I did not want to pit the group of five against each other any more than I wanted to pit the power five against each other. I just didn't think it was fair, right? Uh, but again, 12 is not four. So I'm, I'm, I'm willing to let that ride. I'm willing to let that ride. I had said 16 because I wanted 10 and then six, right? But I'll let that ride. And if we get to 12, I think I'll shut up. I think I'll shut up, right? Because that would be... That would History be enough would suggest for me to say, that no one would shut up, right? Like, well, uh, okay, sure, but but I'm the person with the microphone right now. It's true. You know, I, and what if I, I got I wore a T-shirt to your watch party that said "Expand the playoff, you cowards." You said twelve. <laughs> That's expanding the playoff. All right, I that that would be enough for me. Um, Joel, thank you so much for this, man. This is so you much bet, fun. Man. Um, I do want to have you back. Uh, perhaps it is to discuss your playoff model in a little bit more depth if you're up to it. Um, and I can't wait to see you in the booth next to Gus calling games. It's one Me of my neither, favorite man. things. I know we all look forward to it. Thank you so much. I can't wait. Have a good one, man. Good to see you. What a wild and awesome conversation with Joel Klatt. As he said, we're both very passionate about the sport. We both are seeped in the sport. We care intensely about the kids. We care intensely about the program. And we want to grow the sport. Even if we come at it from different directions, we come at it with great intentions and I really love discussing those things with him because, I mean, Joel knows as much as I do. I know as much as Joel does about these topics. And yet we still come at it from a different angle and a different life philosophy. And, and we end up in a space that is, huh, I'm given something else to think about. I'm really grateful to him to, uh, to do that. And I do really want to have him back on to talk about his college football playoff expansion model. And I need to put mine down to paper to see what the holes in it and maybe go through those things with him as well. So that's a lot of fun. But one of the things you also know that I love to do on the number one ranked show and just in general is talk recruiting, right? And there's still one outstanding five-star who has not committed to play for a program yet. And that is JT Tuimo Lau. He has set visits for all five of his finalists that include Washington, USC, Ohio State, Oregon, and Alabama. And I want to go through them from his first visit that it took place last weekend to his last visit, which is going to take place at Alabama. Talk about the pros and cons of those things. But the reason we're talking about JT Tuimolau as a 2021 five-star who has not decided to commit to play anywhere is because he did what I thought was the smartest thing to do for a guy with his level of leverage, which is to wait. And in being allowed to wait, he eschewed signing excuse me, a national letter of intent. What that means is he can't sign a national letter of intent, but that's not such a bad thing. A national letter of intent binds the person to the school for the period of one year, okay? You have to ask out of your national letter of intent, get a release, and then go to the transfer portal if you want to do something else. If you decide to miss that deadline and not sign a national letter of intent, which means you didn't commit in the early signing period or at signing day in February, you can still sign what is called a financial aid agreement. And a financial aid agreement binds the school to the person, which is very important because in binding the school to the person, you can sign more than one financial aid agreement. And we've seen this happen a lot. It's one of the things I love talking about in the We Out Cheer segment that we're going to get to when we talk about 
what is the worst loss your team ever suffered is how is this going to benefit you, right? How does this benefit us? How does this make the sport better? The way this makes the sport better, right, is you're giving the kid every opportunity to use the leverage and power that he has accumulated by being this good and putting himself in a position to be able to make this best decision that is for him while also not being browbeaten into making a bad decision or a rash decision by somebody saying, we don't have enough spots for you, right? Because that's the other part of recruiting that we don't talk about. We talk about, we talk about the kids committing or decommitting. We don't talk about the committable offer. Like Alabama is renowned for offering a kid, but it's not an offer. It's an offer to camp. You go to camp, they work you out. They make sure that they like you. And then if you beat up on everybody at that camp, they might offer you, okay? This is JT Tuimolau going already knowing he has a scholarship wherever he wants to go. And you have to do your damnness to impress him. And that's why I want to take a little bit of time to go through each one of his schools one by one and give you re really a stage setting. And then I want to check the receipts on each one of these programs as it fits the six foot five, 277 pound defensive tackle who could play offensively and be a great tight end if he wanted to. So let's start with number one. Let's go with Washington, which is where he's going to make his first visit. Okay. So the Washington Huskies are also his home state school. They are also the first program to offer him a scholarship for football. And by the way, you know, in basketball, he had one at Washington State because he's that good. But when they offered him as a true freshman, the head coach was still Chris Peterson. It's now Jimmy Lake. The dynamic duo that was Pete Kwiatkowski and Jimmy Lake has now been split up with Kwiatkowski becoming the coordinator for defense at Texas. And Jimmy Lake, we think, we think is still the brains of that operation, but we're going to find out for sure this year. And then you have a brand new defensive line coach in Rip Rowan. So you're really having to buy into wanting to stay home and you're having to buy into Jimmy Lake more than you're buying into, say, Pete Kwiatkowski or defensive line coach that might have been recruiting you all along. It's also really interesting for me because Washington has a really good pedigree for putting players into the NFL, right? A couple of years ago, they were so good defensively that they were nicknamed Death Row, like Suge Knight, okay? Like, you want to win? Come to Death Row. That kind of great. Vita Vea comes out of there. Elijah Molden this, just this past year. Byron Murphy. I can keep going. The defense has its own sort of cachet within the college football community because if you score 35 or more on Washington, we all know about it because it doesn't happen very often. But Washington has not played for a national championship in some years. They haven't been in the playoffs since 2016. And you would have to be the guy on that defense, unlike you would have to be the guy at somebody else, somewhere else, if you chose to go any of these other places, right? The next one on the list is USC. USC has its own brand name, its own star power. It promotes Hollywood. It wants to be about Hollywood. It is going headfirst in a name, image, and likeness. Clay Helton retooled the recruiting department after finishing dead last in Pac-12 recruiting and outside the top 60 in the 2020 rankings to finishing number seven in 2021 and landing the number one player in the country who also happens to be a defensive lineman in Corey Foreman. He's also going to be alongside Drake Jackson. So you have guys, at least on that defensive line, that you know right away can help you carry the load at USC. We also know that if USC catches lightning in a bottle and they're undefeated going to the Pac-12 championship, we're all going to be watching and you're going to get the kind of national exposure that you want. 
He also, you know, kind of grew up a USC fan. Maybe that still factors. Maybe that doesn't. The receipts on this are USC hasn't been a top five team since 2016 when they were running an entirely different offense and they had entirely different coaching staff around Clay Helton. He is the common denominator in all of this. You're also talking about a USC team that could not win a Pac-12 championship against Oregon who got skull dragged by Iowa State in the Fiesta Bowl. It's not the best program in the country, and it might not even be the best program for his purposes on the West Coast. He might actually be better off staying in the Pac-12 North, okay? The next team we need to talk about is Ohio State. I think it's really interesting that when he visits Ohio State from June 18th to June 20th, it's a weekend in which they have the least amount of official visits scheduled for that month, for this month of June. That means they want to put an emphasis on JT. That means they want to convince him and his parents that this is exactly what they need to be doing. And it's really difficult to say that Ohio State doesn't have receipts. Matter of fact, I would say it's impossible to say. Because they played for a national championship just last year. They're consistently in the hunt for national championships. They run the Big Ten uh, Conference. And Larry Johnson Sr.'s defensive line group continues not just to put out studs, but first rounders. I mean, just think about the last five years. Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, and then we can talk about Chase Young. They just landed Jack Sawyer. You know you're going to have help. Zach Harrison is still over there. Jonathan Cooper was a stud last year. I think he's going to be great. Tommy Togi was a stud last year. You have Haskell Garrett, who might be the best DI in the country. And then offensively, you know that that's an F1 car over there, right? That is a Mercedes Benz. You just got to make sure you put Lewis Hamilton in the seat in the form of a CJ Stroud, Kyle McCord, or Jack Miller. You know what it is over there. And I think there's a reason why the crystal balls are all pointing to Ohio State presently. Okay. Next team we got to talk about is Oregon. Oregon is in a better spot than Washington, a better spot than USC, but it's not in a better spot than Ohio State because the last time that Oregon played for a national championship, Chip Kelly was a head coach, okay? Marcus Mariota was quarterback. They didn't win it. You also have to think about it from the standpoint of their offense is not going to be the offense that Ohio State's is and might not even be the offense that USC's is, even if it's better than the one that Washington runs out there, perhaps with a true freshman five-star in Sam Heward. I also look at it this way. JT Tuimolau on one side and Kayvon Thibodeau on the other going against Ohio State at Columbus in September. Here for it, okay? Because the strength of Oregon is going to be the defense. You have Noah Sewell returning. Justin Flo is going to be a monster. Dante Manning is going to hold it down along with Michael Wright. Like, you, you have guys on that defense. And I trust Joe Moorhead to get it figured out with Anthony Brown or Ty Thompson at quarterback and have them in a position where they can take advantage of what the defense is going to give them. But again, you're going to be have, have to be one of the guys on that defense that turns up. It's going to be Kayvon's team, but you're going to have to be as good as Noel Sewell. You're going to have to be as good as Dante Manning. You're going to have to be as good as Justin Flo for that team to be great. And being great means beating Ohio State in this non-conference game, and then we pay attention to the Pac-12. The last team we need to talk about is the one in which I think I'm putting my money on if I'm not putting it on Ohio State, and that's Alabama. It's the last visit. He took a visit there a couple of years ago. It's the first time he's been able to get back. And you cannot argue with the receipts from Alabama. With Freddie Roach in that defensive line, they've been awesome. Christian Barmore was great last year, but Phil Mathis is going to be awesome this year. You have Chris, uh, Christian Harris at linebacker. You're adding Henry to O2O. He's a monster. 
You are able to put Josh Job over there and maybe Jaquincy McQuinstry at the cornerback spots, Jordan Battle at safety. Like, you, oh my gosh, you got Brian Branch and Malachi Moore playing in those, those star positions, those safety positions. You can legitimately be awesome at Alabama. You also know that we're always going to give Alabama kids the benefit of the doubt because of how great they have been in the Nick Saban era, right? You could probably be the first player to win a Heisman Trophy as a defensive lineman at Alabama in a way that you can't be, I should say, defensive, defensive lineman and win a Heisman Trophy at Alabama in the way that we thought you could be at Ohio State, right, with Chase Young. Like, I thought he was the best player in the country in 2019. Y'all keep telling me Joe Burrow, and I keep saying Joe Burrow can't do what Chase Young does. <laughs> can't, he, can't, he can't do it. None of us could do it, and the NFL is bearing that out. So if I have to put my money on something today, it's hard for me not to pick Ohio State, but after that, it's got to be Alabama, but nobody cares who finishes second in a recruiting sweepstakes. All these spots are good places for JT Tuimolau because JT Tuimolau is good, period. And I think we're going to learn a lot from how he has gone through this process, and I think we're going to see more five-star players of his caliber continue to wait it out even in a non-pandemic year and sign financial aid agreements like Demetrius Robertson did before he went to Georgia. And then we'll figure out more about how to usher in what I think many of you are calling free agency in college football. I say there's no free agency until we get a CBA and a union rep, but I'm also the only person that wants to really see the sport become something like professional. All right. I want to do the We Out Here segment. That is where I ask you, the fans of the number one ranked show, a question, and you did not disappoint once again. The question was, what's the worst loss your team has ever taken? And I've made some criteria for this, right? Because I think when we rank things and we try to list things, we need to have a criteria for how we're considering this. So for it to be a worst loss, you have to consider how good the team is in the AP rankings at the time, the stakes when the loss occurred, bonus points if it occurred during a national championship game, 2003 Oklahoma, what's up? How big the spread was at the time is also a factor for me. So we pulled a few of the best replies that we got to this question. And producer Catherine, a.k.a. producer Cat, a.k.a. SEC Catherine, what we got? All right. I got the first one for you. Yes, ma'am. It's from at J. Dave Brinkley, okay. and he says, 1978 Orange Bowl. OU lost to Arkansas 31-6. to If the Sooners win, they're national champs. So many rumors surrounded that game. No, that's, that's a legitimately good game to pick as an Oklahoma fan, though, as many of you will know, as many of you can say, we got a lot of bad losses. But this one isn't particularly important to me because it's got a twist at the end. All right. So in 1977, Oklahoma was ranked number two in the country headed into the Orange Bowl 1978 with the win against their opponent, Arkansas. The Sooners would have won their third national title in five years. All right. I'm telling you, in the 1970s, Switzer's OU was cooking with gas, talking about propane and propane accessories. All right. But Arkansas, OU's opponent in the Orange Bowl, knew a little bit of something about cooking teams over charcoal because they were really ascending up the rankings. Lou Holtz's Hogs that year started out unranked. Then they went in on their all hell, here comes Arkansas bent. When they beat up New Mexico State, then smacked number 15 Oklahoma State, mopped up Texas Christian with hot sauce. 
all before their only regular season loss came to, I'm going to quote Arkansas fight writer Luke Davis here when he says, those belt buckled fops from Austin. <laughs> Which, oh boy, I cannot wait for Texas and Arkansas to play in 2021 this year. But the Hogs finished the 77 season 10 and 1 with a 26 to 20 thumping of their hated rival, Texas A&M, who was ranked number 11 at the time. So they have a number six ranking going into the Orange Bowl. But again, it's the Orange Bowl. And well, them hogs about to be broken in half by the wishbone. You let people tell it back then. The Sooners had run up one side and down the other, number four, Ohio State. Twisted 16th ranked Cyclones, like a hair full of locks, like the ones on my head. Smashed the Cornhuskers like corn liquor, 38-7 in Norman. So they're feeling themselves. They're feeling pretty good about this. They're also a 21-point favorite going into the Orange Bowl. They think they're going to, you know, cook up some bacon, call it a hog, serve it up with some grips, get a national title. You thought. Boy, you thought. Man, I read the box score. I read some game stories. Arkansas jumped on Oklahoma like its name was Job. Okay? Just, just, just beat them like they stole something. 31-6. to six. As my man Dave points out, or 31-10, I think it was. Anyway, any hope of claiming a national championship went out the window with that loss. And Arkansas, having started out unranked, would have had to go undefeated for anybody to give them claim to a national championship, right? So they come up short because of Texas and oh Texas. All right, so Texas fans going to love to hear me say this. Texas was the only team that year to beat both Oklahoma and Arkansas that season. And... Did it in back-to-back weeks, beating Oklahoma and Texas, back-to-back weeks. They, they're undefeated going into the Cotton Bowl against Notre Dame, where the winner effectively wins a national championship, okay? They proceed to lose their perfect season and get skull-dragged by the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame in the Cotton Bowl, 38-10. to 10. Notre Dame had one loss that year, and it was to Ole Miss in the SIP. So they claimed the 1977 national championship so that is three of the worst losses for OU Texas and Arkansas in the same doggone year uh I really love that all right uh produce cat what we got next okay up next from at JP Hayes 21 so many to choose from Texas versus OU 2003 Texas versus Miami 1991 Texas versus Kansas 2016 Okay, so the Texas versus Kansas one to 2016 is, is pretty awesome uh, because Kansas ain't got no business beating that Texas team. Pick any one of those three Miami teams to beat Oklahoma and you will find an Oklahoma fan that will fight you because I think through 1985 to 1988, Oklahoma lost three games. One to Miami on the road, one to Miami at home, one to Miami in the Orange Bowl. Okay, so you can pick any one of those Jimmy Johnson teams to beat the hell out of Oklahoma. But the reason I want to point out the 91 Cotton Bowl is because it's so much fun. All right, it's the best game we don't ever talk about enough because Texas and Miami going into this game, and Texas has a shot with some things breaking their way in the Cotton Bowl to claim a national championship. But I'm about to tell you a story about how they got skull dragged 46-3 by Miami. It got full. All right. So check it. Texas is 10 and one player national title against the Miami team is nine and two in the cotton Bowl. before the game. UT offensive tackle Stan Thomas claims that he's going to take Russell Maryland's Outland trophy from him. Russell Maryland's defensive lineman at Miami. Thomas Thomas also called Miami players 
Typical gangsters. I hope the first play lasts five minutes because I'm going to hit everybody. I like they ain't hear you. Like, like Miami ain't have dudes like Randall Hill, who basically said, I don't think that anybody can stop me doing anything I want to do. Okay. You had dudes on that Miami team that were afraid to tell their teammates that they like to study. Okay. Anyway, Robert Bailey, who played corner for the Canes, heard Thomas talking his noise. And he said, on the first play of the game, he's going to knock a UT player out. When I tell you that man kept his word, on the kickoff, he went down the field and knocked the returner smooth out. Like the trainers had to come get that man. All right, that proceeds what is going to be an epic display of the Canes racking up penalties. At one point, I found a picture of first and 40 for Miami for some of the antics that they pulled and the unnecessary roughness penalties and the pass interference penalties and the holding penalties, right? Like, they did not care. They rack up something like 200 yards of penalties and still managed to beat Texas 46-3 also, shocker for me, Mike Francesca's on television calling this game somehow. And that was the bookend of what I think is the best loss that I've ever seen anybody take because one is Texas, two is that Miami team, which is my team that I never got to see play. And I really, really love that they were able to win a game by 43 points that if they don't get the penalties, probably win something like, I don't know, 150 to three. <laughs> And Texas team was good. They weren't bad. Anytime we're dunking on Texas, I'm here for it. Uh, speaking of dunking on Texas, <laughs> producer Cat, what we've got next? All right, this is the last one, um, which I know is personal to you. It's <sighs> OU's 2018. Oh, sorry, this is from at Jenks JJ17. He said it's OU's 2018 Rose Bowl loss to Georgia. Not even close. So there's the 55 to 19 drubbing that USC put on, you know, Oklahoma. And before that, that was bad. After that, you know, 2008, Urban Meyer, Tim Tebow, Florida, that was bad. But my team, the team that I really, really loved was 27 Oklahoma, 2017 Oklahoma Sooners. They had a historically awful defense. You heard Joel say it. But they were winning this game against Georgia in the Rose Bowl. They're up, I kid you not, 31 to 14 with 322 left to play. And Lincoln Riley has the bright idea to squib kick it for whatever reason. It wasn't like, you know, Georgia returners were something, you know, to fear. So they squib kick it. And then Kirby Smart is able to go get three points, close the gap 31-17, which doesn't feel like a big deal until. Oklahoma comes out in the second half, has to punt after just three plays. And then Georgia takes one play, Nick Chubb going 50 yards in one direction. And now the score is 31 to 24. Mind you, it's 31 14, like, like with three minutes left to go in the first half. And now all of a sudden it's 31 24 with like 11 30 left to go in the third. And Oklahoma continues to disintegrate. Okay. Georgia ties the game up, 31 up, off an interception. Excuse me, they got a touchdown tied up 31 up, and then Baker threw it to an interception. So they go up 38 to 31. And back and forth, Oklahoma and Georgia go till Georgia's able to win this game 54 to 48 
in double overtime against the best Oklahoma team that I can remember. I mean, I know people want to say 2008, but that was my squad. And I sincerely believe if Oklahoma beats Georgia, they beat Alabama, they win their eighth national championship because they were the matchup. They were the one that could give that Alabama defense problems and score with them. But the fact that Oklahoma got outscored by Georgia and Jake from State Farm is enough. I am not recovered. I will never recover from that loss. I can't stand it. So much like I'm in a group text. There's a Georgia fan in a group text. They won no national championship in 40 years. And I got to hear about this man beating up Oklahoma in a Rose Bowl for a shot at a national championship every single week. Because Lincoln Riley wants to squid kick it up 17 against Georgia, a running football team. Ah! All right, I'm through. Um, I'm, uh, all right. One of the things I really enjoy about the folks that help you see this show, produce this show, create what I think is a really cool thing for you to consume is hearing their stories. And everybody here is a college football fan. So I had asked this just, you know, what's the worst loss your team has ever had? And everybody had a response. And I thought the response was so good that I asked for each one of them to tell a short story about why they chose the game they did. And you'll know their team and what it means to them. So producer Cat, I want you to tell me who your team is and what's the worst loss you ever saw your team take. Okay. Well, you know this. I am a Tennessee volunteer. I know. It's hard to pick. Um, and I know that you said that you need to think about context here and when, um, like, what's at stake. And we haven't had anything at stake for 20 years. So I'm going to pick the loss that is the most personal to me mm-hmm. and how badly I felt. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of context here. So it was in 2015 and it was Tennessee playing your Oklahoma Sooners. And I was. Um, I worked games most of the time. Like I was on the field, um, with a camera in my hand. And I remember my senior year, I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to be a fan. And I want to be able to like go to the games and be in the environment for my last year of college. Um, and I had somehow gotten on the front row of our student section at that game, like the front row where I'm like featured on the jumbotron a million times. And Tennessee was fired up that game. Like we were pumped. All right. That was, I think, the Butch Jones brick by brick era with Josh Dobbs. And, um, you know, we we had done the whole checker the stadium where it's orange and white and it looked really cool. And it was actually very loud. We like broke a decibel record for how like loud the game was. Um, But I think we started out like 17 up 17 and then you guys slowly start crawling your way back in. And I just remember it goes to overtime and this is Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield's playing for you guys. We have Josh Dobbs and like the game ended after going like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with Josh Dobbs throwing an interception. Like that's how the game ended for us. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. And I just remember like being in 
the stands like so incredibly sad. And I'm pretty sure since I was on the front row, I think I, 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 I don't think I know I was on TV just like in complete disbelief. And my friends sent me screenshots of the TV with no. sad. Yeah. It was sad me in the stands just completely heartbroken like at a loss for words just like cannot believe this happened because as a tennessee fan that happens all the time like you think we have it and then we do something so completely idiotic or just self-destructive where we blow it we have blown so many leads that it's just this is just one of the many um, I remember I texted you when you told us you were going to ask this question. It's like, where do I begin? <laughs> that one was tough. Um, there was another one that just very briefly, like um, we were playing Georgia because you mentioned Georgia or earlier. And you know that rule, that really dumb rule that I hate where if you fumble the ball and it goes into the end zone, it's a touchback. Yes. We lost a game in overtime to Georgia on that. Pig Howard stretched his body as far as a body can stretch. Okay. And it's one of the coolest pictures I've ever seen, but I don't look at it because it's so utterly heartbreaking. Um, but he stretched his body as far as it could go. He fumbles the ball in the end zone. It's a touchback. We lose the ball. Georgia goes down the field, kicks the field goal, wins the game. And I'm, I'm working that game. And I was standing in the end zone where he fumbled it. And it was... Those two losses leave such bad taste in my mouth because it was like we almost had it <laughs> and it was heartbreaking, but there's so many of them. So those are my two. There's uh, more. I'm going to add a little bit of insult to injury. I learned here recently that Trevor Lawrence was taking a visit to Tennessee for oh, the yeah. Tennessee game. And uh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe Oklahoma saved his career. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's the potentially one. you could sure look at it that I mean I'm glad honestly I love Tennessee but we um I've created a little distance because <laughs> I, I think I told you they're the most unhealthy relationship I've ever been in I was just gonna say broken my heart so many times I keep giving them chance after chance and it's I just needed for my own well-being to create a little distance there it's a toxic boyfriend it's a, yep. it's, a it's a drug that you have to rehabilitate yourself from I love this sure is um, all right. So I want to introduce y'all to our social manager, social maven, Javion Duncan, who runs the accounts that you so love. The number one ranked show does a tremendous job and is here always turning out content for the show. But you can see my man has on a South Carolina Gamecocks jersey. And there's a little bit more to that as he tells the story about the worst loss that he ever saw his team take. Uh, yeah. Javion, what you got? You know, RJ, as a former Gamecock football player, proud alum, you know, you forgot to put the proud alum on my name. Um, But as a player, you know, the worst loss was losing to South Florida in the Birmingham Bowl of 2016, RJ. And, um, you know, our introduction to the Birmingham Bowl was a cop, you know, all the cops, you know, let us know what our parameters are at the bowl game. And the cop pretty much says, Look, guys, the best advice I can give you is just stay in the hotel. You know, don't don't go around anywhere. There's nothing in Birmingham really for you to do. So just just have fun in the hotel. And uh, so I knew I was like, all right, this is how this is going to go. But um, overtime game, Bur- uh, South Florida, 
my guy Jake Bentley, I love Jake. Please don't, please don't hate me, Jake. But Jake got a sack fumble in overtime. We lose the game. By the way, Birmingham was freezing cold. So it wasn't like, you know, a warm weather game where you were enjoying yourself. You were freezing. And uh, yeah, RJ, that was that was my toughest loss, man. But still forever to be. Okay, Quentin Flowers and TJ Whites as the interim head coach. Hand y'all this 46-39 L. Yeah. Uh, South Florida's 11-win team then. Y'all y'all 6-7, and seven, you know. Ooh, they were a good team. You're not terrible. Good. You're not yeah. terrible. All right, I'm going to let you – I'm a, you know what? I hope your Gamecocks do well, but you're going to owe me – you're going to have to pay off this bet at the end. I just – you know. And we'll we'll leave that out of it for the time being. We'll leave that Fair out of the time being. Fair enough, um, To wrap up the show, I also want to point to uh, Director Chris, who is a USC alumnus and fan. I asked him what the worst loss he ever saw USC take. He pointed to the 2017 Cotton Bowl in which Ohio State beats SC 24-7. And he had friends that had driven 21 hours to the game through West Texas to watch Ohio State beat the hell out of his Trojans. It's an awful loss. Uh, point out executive producer of the show, Kristen Scott, little worst loss she saw, 59-0. Ohio State drubbing on Wisconsin. As a Wisconsin fan, I, you know what? I get it. I understand. Um, goodness me. Um, as I like to end the show, uh, shout out Kristen Scott executive producer of the show. Javion Duncan is our social media manager and Maven. Chris Cheshire directed the show and Catherine Donnelly, producer Cat, produces the show. And you make the show what it is. We're having so much fun doing this. We are finding our stride. We're getting into a groove. We are planning media days and we are having some outstanding guests on this show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review. It helps other people discover it. You can follow it on YouTube instagram twitter facebook whatever your social media narcotic is we are there um i am so grateful to do this i'm so grateful to have the help we have putting this show on and i'm grateful to you for downloading and for listening and for watching um i'm, I'm having a ball all right that is it for me doses <laughs>